morning and uh, greetings to all of you. We greet you in the name of Christ. Um, it's good to see all of you. This past week, I had an interesting week at work. I I work with some inter- interesting people, um, people from all walks of life. And, and uh, one of the individuals, he's, uh, cr- they're cross-training some people on some of the jobs, so I'm cross-training him on my job. And uh, during the course of the day, he, he, I know him quite, we kind of know each other pretty, I mean, we worked with each other and often enough that we kind of know each other, so he just, we just gl- says what's on his mind. And during the course of the day, he made a statement that, uh, I don't believe in God. Uh, he said, religion is for the weak-minded and those who need a crutch to go through life. And... Uh, if you've worked in the trailer factory as long as I have, I learned not to react. Those are the kind of things that you meet when you really are out in the crosswalks of life. Uh, you meet those kinds of people. I've learned not to react, but it's interesting to watch others, both Christians and non-Christians, how they were, because there were others who heard the remarks. Um, I work with a Christian who doesn't go to church, and I work with an unbeliever who goes to church. Yes, it's true. So I work with all kinds of people, and it's just interesting to watch the reactions of, of those. So I just asked a few questions. I, I asked, uh, so what, what's your purpose in life? Why, I mean, what are you, why do you do what you do? Why are you here? He said, well, I'm here, he said, uh, to keep the human race going. I, and he has three boys, three young boys. I said, man, that's an amazing legacy you're giving your sons. <laughs> it kind of was a little sarcasm. And uh, he said, uh, I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone in life. I, I, I said, you, you just know that that's not true. There, isn't, there aren't any of us that are that big and strong that we can go through life alone and never need anyone. But I brought him back to Christ. I brought him back and said, you know, there's really one question you need to answer. Who was Jesus? Either he's the world's biggest deceiver or he's who he said he was, the Son of God. That's the question you really need to answer. For the rest of this is just peripheral. And so I I brought him back to Christ and, and to that. But you know, even if there was nothing after this life, I want all of you to know this morning that it would still be worth living the life as a Christian. To be plugged into a church and to be a part of a church. Because of the wisdom, the depth, the discernment that the Bible gives us to go through life. You see... Take my co-worker. Do you see how incredibly shallow that kind of thinking is? You know, it's one of those things that has drawn me to God is that there is wisdom to be had, there's depth to be had, there's discernment to be had to, as we walk through life. It's drawn me. The Bible is so practical. It, it speaks to everyday issues. Not, not all these gray areas. 
but to basic life principles that are just wise to walk in. Philosophy, I mean, philosophy answers questions nobody's asking. Somebody has said a philosopher is somebody who talks about something he doesn't understand and makes you sound like it's your fault. But you know, the Bible isn't like that. It talks about things everybody's asking about. And, and it's so practical. I'm going to show you this morning why the, just an illustration of why the Bible is just so practical to everyday life. Romans 12 and 13 kind of give us the how-to section, how to walk as a Christian. And so I'm going to give you a brief review. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is the foundation of a healthy life. Uh, how to live healthy and how to live a, the foundation of what it means to please God. What it looks like. It's a surrendered life. A life that isn't formed by the external pressures the world puts upon us, but that is formed from within. God working within us. And the goal is God is going to make something beautiful out of you within. And I, I, It's kind of like the worm to a butterfly change. I call it creepy things to wings program. Uh, we're all a part of that. If you're a Christian, you're a part of that program. Now, verses 3 to 8 tell us how to live that surrendered life, to, uh, how, to, how, to, how to walk with God. And it, it shows us that the way to surrender is by serving others, serving others in the body of Christ. And he, and he talks about the spiritual gifts that you have been given as a child of God, a spiritual gift that is all about serving someone else. I mean, how to do life that really works. You know, in this church, we, we teach you, we instruct you, we give you some basic life principles on how to walk that's wise, that's less stressful. And uh, it's not about being dependent or independent. It's about being interdependent. We learn here in church how to lean on each other and to trust each other. We build each other up. We give you some life principles that you need to walk through life in a, in a, a, with kind of a wisdom. Verses 9 through 11 have to do with about, about being real. You know, which one of us here doesn't need some answers and some instruction how not to be a hypocrite? You know, that just comes pretty easy to fake it in church. We all need some, uh, some, some instruction how to be genuine, how to be authentic, how to be real. And then the rest of the chapter talks about how we deal with our enemies. You know, most of us have lived long enough to have really blown it when it comes to people we just don't like or don't like us. Uh, how to relate to those kinds of people. So we, so we all need those kinds of answers. These are, these are practical parts of life that all of us need help in. Questions we've all been asking. Then in, verse, then in verse chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, talks about how to be a good citizen 
and a good Christian at the same time. In the last message, we talked at length how to how a Christian relates to government, how to submit yourself to governmental authorities that that honors God, a kind of submission. You know, we live in a day when government's out of control, and, and who, what Christian, what what Christian that really is serious about life isn't asking, how do I submit? to this kind of a government that is so anti-God and anti-Christian? How do we do it? So these are such valid questions. These are questions we all need to, we're asking. Then in verses 6 through 8, God talks about how to handle money, how to make the most of money that's in your pocket. And how to handle money as it relates to government. And how to handle money as it relates to your personal affairs. And then in verses 9 and 10, talks, God talks about how to get along with your neighbor. But do you see how practical the Bible is? Do you see why I said if there, if, if there was nothing after this life, it would still be worthwhile for you to live the life as a Christian, to be a part of a church. Now, let's get more out of this. I mean, I mean, as a, as a Christian, we get more out of life. Life has more color, more flavor, and more value and meaning if we live as Christians. So let's take this deeper. In chapter 13... Verses 5 through 10 forms, uh, th there are six verses that form a context. Think of, think of your home. What, what makes you, the house you live in a home is a lot of what surrounds it. Your yard, the shrubbery, the landscaping, the trees. Those are kinds of the kinds of things that give your home or your house the touch of a home. It's no different with Scripture. If you lift verses out of the context, you lose the meaning of why God has placed them in the context. Um, Besides that, you never know where you're going to end up with it. And where, if you just lift verses out of Scripture, you never know where you're going to end up at with some of those. You know, there isn't a cult today that doesn't take some truth out of the Bible and twists it, takes it out of the context, gives it a good twist, and uses it to deceive people. They take some truth. Now, so... I mean, we can just just we can justify almost anything if we're gonna, if we're going to be dishonest with Scripture. In verse five, Paul says, "Wherefore," and that means it means it's a continuation of a thought. The general context is how to live the Christian life. When others quit, how do you hang in there? How do you keep going? Um, how do you stay at it? 
That's the general concept. Now, to be more specific is what do you do when the government or the people run wild? How do you do what's right? So the, the specific context is how to be a good citizen. Then he tells us in the first four verses that you should submit yourself to the government of, governmental authorities. And in verse 5, Paul continues this thought, and he says, Wherefore, ye must needs be subject. And there he gives us two reasons why it's important we submit ourselves to government. First of all, for the if we violate the law, we face the government's wrath. All of you know that when there's a violation, when you break the law, you can expect government to be on you. And second of all, for the sake of a clear conscience before God. That's why you submit yourself to the government. Now included, this thing isn't working too well, guys. There you go. Verse 6, included in the submission to government is paying taxes. For this cause ye pay tribute also. They are God's ministers attending continually on this very thing. So the context gets even more specific and it changes to money. To be a good citizen and a good Christian, you give the government what is due. You pay your taxes. Uh, but Paul goes beyond that in verse 7, and he says, Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. You go even beyond that. So the context is still money. Paul says in verse 8, Owe no man anything but to love another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. God, in verse 8, God touches on three areas. He touches on our debt, our love for others, and the law. I want you to notice how that the everyday humdrum of life affects the spiritual. Something as humdrum and as everyday as your checkbook, your bank account, affects the spiritual dimension part of your life. Notice that in this verse. Debt, the law. They're connected. As I studied for this, I, I realized anew how little man's nature has changed in 2,000 years. The Bible that you're holding, in that day in which that Bible was, was written, two out of every three people were slaves. They were owned by someone else. That statistic has not changed. In 2000, the statistic was that two out of every three people were living off the money of someone else. They were in debt. And according to Proverbs, when you owe someone else, you become that person's servant. 
figuratively, two out of every three people are still slaves of someone else. That was in 2000. I'm guessing statistics would be higher today. Debt. How do we live without it? It seems so casual. It's everybody's in debt. Uh, some time ago, uh, one of my coworkers told me how he had bought his wife a new Honda Pilot. And about a half an hour later, he comes and asks me for two bucks to get something off the brake truck. And I just asked him, I said, is there something wrong with this picture? If you had the money for a new Honda Pilot, then you certainly should have two dollars to eat off the truck. And he, I knew he didn't have. I mean, I know how this guy lives. But uh, if there is one thing that should distinguish us as Christians from those of the world, it's how we do finances. How we handle our money. And so I'm going to set some things in front of you that are long overdue from this pulpit. And uh, in doing so, I, I want all of you to know I don't mean you any disrespect. And even more than that, I, I do it because I really care about you. Um, I want you to be successful in life. I want you to be successful in business. I, I want you to be successful in your marriage. But there's some life principles that some of you need to grab a hold of. One of the reasons that finances are so important is because they impact your spiritual life. They impact your walk with God. You show me someone with financial issues and I'll show you someone who's struggling and walking with God. Too many Christians are taking a casual attitude towards debt. and Consequently, we have all kinds of debt. Credit cards, car loans, home equity loans, mortgages, and today, people are not asking what the real cost of something is. They ask, what's the monthly payment? The result is that Christians are living way beyond their means, using other people's money to subsidize a lifestyle they can't afford, to impress people that they don't really like. So let me put it clearly. If you don't have enough money, the last thing you need is some bank some financial institution or some credit card company sponging off of you and leeching off of you. That's the last thing you need. Stop thinking debt is normal. Owe no man anything. And I, I truly believe that the heart of God is for us to only be a servant of his. Now, I know there are some things in this life we need some credit for. I know there's a need, in the, even here, there's a need for some balance. Such as homes, uh, business investments. I know some of those things take capital. So I, th I, th I know there's some exceptions, but I think those exceptions should be rare and not the norm. Buy what you can afford. I mean... Um, when it comes to vehicles, I think all of you should be able to write a check. I know. I'm really going to go out here on a limb. But what happens is we're buying what we cannot afford. I want you to just, this morning, imagine what our offerings would be if 
we could just have the interest, what some of you pay all year, on your vehicle would be added to the offering. Not add the interest what you're paying on your credit card and the home equity loan. Imagine what our offerings would be if that came to the church instead of some financial institution. Guys, we can do better than this. You see how it adds up? Now, I want to share a few things that help my wife and I, and I guess I first need to make a confession. We have never lived by a budget. Even though I would endorse it and recommend it. But neither have we lived irresponsibly. We have lived by a very, very simple principle in life. And that is this. If we didn't have the money for it up front, we just did without. Um, I I just really want to encourage all of you that are younger, both married and unmarried, sacrifice while you're younger. Stay out of debt. And don't think you, you, you need everything today. Or that you, that you have to keep up with someone else. I know we all need to hear that one. You youth are great. That way I could preach to all everybody. <laughs> but uh, Dave Ramsey has a saying, live like, nobody, live like nobody else does, so later on you can live like nobody else can. And that's such a truth to that. You know, even in the things my wife and I have bought, the major purses, we prayed about it, told God what we'd like, and then we waited. And you know, so many times God has given us phenomenal deals because we were willing to wait. You know, the few major purchases that I have lived to regret are those that I made very impulsively very quickly, without, without, a little t- without a much prayer or much time. Those are the purchases I've lived to regret. And even in a home purchase, buy what you can afford. Be willing to sacrifice and put up with something a little less. And here's why. Here's why it's so wise. A CPA, a local CPA, uh, shared how that a young couple who buys a seventy-five or $100,000 home, pays it off, and then uses that home as a stepping stone to something more in the $200,000 range or two hundred and fifty, versus the couple who goes out and buys a $250,000 home right off the bat, saves at least $100,000 in interest over the life of a loan. So start small, sacrifice, and live within your means. Those are timeless truths and principles that serve every generation. And those are things that should set us apart as Christians. Now, I promised you the balance, and I will give that. Is God against all debt? The word O is the present imperative. It's a command that means don't keep owing. 
The NIV probably best captures that thought when it says, let no debt remain outstanding. If you owe a loan, when does that, when does it, when do you, if you have a loan, when do you owe on that loan? When the payment comes due. If you have a, home, if you have a loan and, and the first of the month, that loan comes due, you pay it on the first of the month. If you have a mortgage and it is due the 15th of the month, again, that's when you owe it. You pay it on the 15th of the month. One expositor puts it this way, never leave any debt unpaid. Very simply. So is there room in the Christian life for debt? The answer is yes, yes. But I strongly believe it needs to be the exception rather than the norm. A Christian businessman named George Bowman wrote this, and it kind of gives you a little bit of perspective of, of the country li we live in. And I'll just read it. He said, the wealth of a nation is the ability to produce. The wealth is accumulated by the cooperative efforts of capital, management, and labor. For this effort, labor receives wages, management receives salaries and profits, and capital receives interest. If it were not for the business of lending money at interest, millions of dollars would never be put to work. They would be hoarded in the cupboards of idleness. And the only thing worse than a lazy dollar is a lazy man. Both are parasites on an economy. Both men and my money lying idle have one sure thing in common. Somebody must pay for their laziness. A nation is robbed of production that could be affected by capital invested when capital is idle. When capital is invested, the principle of credit is immediately involved. What is loaned by one party must be borrowed by another. Buying on credit does many things for a free nation. For example, it produces cheaper manufacturing. Buying on credit allows people to enjoy some of the very expensive thing, products they could never pay cash for. I mean, one of these things would certainly involve a home. But again, I think credit needs to be the exception and not the norm. Some time ago, I had the occasion of talking with a local businessman in town and he shared uh, how he had done some, some work for another individual who considers himself a Christian. And even some of it was done on Sunday because of equipment failure that had taken place. And he says, this man has never paid me. And it wasn't a few hundred dollars. It was thousands of dollars. Worth. He had never paid him. So is there room for debt? Yes. Yes, there is, but scripture and integrity calls us to exercise self-control, pay what we owe, as well as paying on time. Now, is there, there is a debt that all of us have and all of us owe. It says there in verse 8, Owe no man anything but to love one another. The debt that we all have is we owe each other, we owe love to each other. That's the debt we all have. And the debt that continually that needs to be paid. Um, notice 
Paul says, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth hath fulfilled the law. Now, some of you might be thinking, man, this has got to be easier than, the, than this financial lecture we just got. This part of loving somebody else has to be easier. But wait a minute. It's easy to love somebody who's just like you, who thinks like you, has the same pursuits in life. It's easy to love somebody like that. But when Paul uses the word another there in verse 8, the one that I've got highlighted, he does not... He, he could have used two Greek words. He could have used alas or heteros. And it, he uses heteros. It's not one of the same. It's not the same. Somebody who has the same. It's one who is very, very different. In fact, it was even translated strange. Now, I know you're not going to admit it this morning, but some of you know that some people are so different from you you would consider them strange. They just don't have the same pursuits. They don't face life the way you do. Um, they don't have your personality. They have different principles they're living by. Their reactions aren't the same. They even approach finances different than you do. And perhaps they even owe you money. Another color, another background, different clothes. You get the twist? I know some of you are now back on the fence thinking maybe the finance thing is easier. <laughs> but keep your fingers here. I, I want you to see James, uh, James chapter 2. You're going to follow on the PowerPoint as well. James chapter 2. James writes, My brethren, have not faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. To paraphrase it, I would say, don't think when you have faith in Jesus that the only one that knows is Jesus. If you have a real faith, it's demonstrated in how you relate to others who are very different from you. In those days, there were house churches, and uh, when, when, when there was a service, friends of the homeowner or would drop by our guests. And uh, the, there was an elder who would sit at the entry gate and he would, would, uh, he would take the guests, those who arrived, and he would seat them. Now in verse 2, two kinds of guests arrive. We have one that is very well-to-do and one that is poor. And, and all of you know this elder sized him up, checked him out, and he knew which was which. You know, we, we were all guilty of that. We have all taken people, and we've sized them up. We say, you know, this one fits in this category. This one fits over here. And um, it's easy to do. This one has a nice suit, expensive suit. And this one comes in with holes in his pants, and it smells like he needed a bath a week ago already. It's, it's, and he takes the rich guy, in verse 3, and he gives him a lazy boy recliner to sit on. And the poor guy, he said, uh, you sit here at my feet on the floor, here in the back, preferably where nobody else sees you. Verse 4 says, are ye not 
partial in yourselves and become judges of evil thoughts. In other words, doesn't the obvious favoritism demonstrate the evil in your hearts? You know, some of you have been in church for so long, you've forgotten where you've came from. You've forgotten those days when you, you didn't really know God. You didn't really know the Bible. And you were the ones with holes in your pants, and the one needing a bath. And the tendency is to kind of look down at those who are just getting started in life. You've had years of good instruction, good teaching to get where you're at. But you need to remember you come from the same dung heap as those getting started. You just smell better now. And to those of you that are starting out, I want you to know that there is room in this church for strugglers. But be teachable, be willing to grow, and put some effort into it. Real faith takes, takes effort, it takes work. Verse 5 says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, the rich in faith, and the heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him. Simply put, hasn't, hasn't God taken the strugglers, the ones who really haven't had it all together, isn't God taken those who believe? Isn't those the one that God has chosen? Verse 8 says, If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. I want to suggest that this is the law that, that Paul is talking about here in Romans 13, the royal law. Love thy neighbor, the second greatest commandment of Scripture. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Back to Romans 13. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law, the royal law, the law of Moses. It says in verse 9, for this, or because of this, because you are loving your neighbor, you don't commit adultery. You don't bear false witness. You don't covet. And if there's any, uh, you don't kill, you don't steal. And if there be any other commandment, it's briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You see, Love worketh no evil to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. You don't do these things. These are statements. You don't do these things not because you're worrying about breaking the law. You don't do these things because you care and you love your neighbor. And when you love, you fulfill the law. You're not operating in sin. You're operating in positive territory. Love your neighbor as yourself. The reason that some have such a big struggle 
and loving their neighbor is because they don't love themselves. I know it's not something that gets taught a whole lot in this church. How to love yourself. It's not pride and it's not sin to appreciate and value how God has made you. And some of you need to hear that. To love yourself, to have a good sense of self-worth is healthy. It's not sin. It's not sin. If you don't love yourself, if you don't appreciate the way God has made you, how are you going to love How are you going to love somebody else? You know, some of the sickest people are those who hate themselves and the way God has created them. Let me give you three closing thoughts. Only one continuing debt honors the Lord, and that is loving your neighbor. There's one debt you, we all need to keep remember we have, and that's to love others. Secondly, only one thing fulfills the law, and that is loving those who are different. You know, some of you, you need to make more of an effort to love those that are different than you. Thirdly, only one truth releases us to love that way, and that is when we have a deep, subtle peace and appreciation how God has made us. Um, Ogle Wetzel, a freelance writer, tells this true story that happened between Flagstaff and Albuquerque. says the Greyhound bus slowed and then came to a stop. It was just a wayside stop with a garage and a small store. And a young American Indian stepped aboard the bus and after he had paid his fare he sat down right behind me. It was February. We were traveling from Flagstaff, Arizona to Albuquerque, New Mexico and the night was cold. In the warm bus the tired youth was soon asleep. After about 20 minutes, he got up and walked hurriedly to the front of the bus to ask if we were nearing his destination. We passed that a long time ago, snapped the bus driver. Acknowledging he had known the, bu- the boy was riding beyond his stop, he angrily asked, why didn't you get off then? The quiet passenger's shoulders drooped. He turned and he came back to his seat and barely had sat down when he rose again and went to the driver. Will you stop and let me off here? I'll, I'll walk back. No, it's too far and it's too cold. You'll freeze to death. You have to go all the way to Albuquerque and to take the bus back. Disappointment showed in his walk as he came back to his seat behind me. Were you asleep, I asked him. Yes. My sister's waiting for me back there and, and it, it's, it's cold. He dropped into the seat behind me and And all the while, as we were nearing Albuquerque, a large, strange city was ahead, and I thought he must be wondering what he would do when he he got there. I turned to the stranger and asked, are are you afraid? 
Yes, he said in a kind of I hate to admit it kind of way. Then stay with me, I said. I'll, I'll help you get on the right bus back. But, but they'll make me pay again when I get up, come on the bus and I don't have any money. I'll talk to the bus driver, I said. Will you please check with the return driver so he need not pay a return fare, I asked. Okay, the driver said reluctantly. Everything will be all right, I told the young Indian, and his eyes said thank you. We rode for possibly ten more minutes, and then a hand reached up and tapped me on the shoulder. I turned to see my young friend leaning toward me, and in a reverent, quiet voice, he asked, Are you a Christian? Let's bow. That question is still valid today. Are you really a Christian? You see, God has never intended our faith to remain silent and internal. He intended faith to be lived out in every moment of every day. How are you doing? Could people really tell that you're a Christian the way you live? And if they can't, isn't it time for change? Father, thank you this morning for this time centered around your word. Thank you, Father, for the clarity of your word, the scriptures, practicality. Lord, thank you for reminding us even if there were no heaven, it would still be worth living life as a Christian. And walking in those timeless truths of the Bible, the Scripture. Lord, thank you for meeting us today and reminding us that while it is true, we make a profession that the Christian life goes beyond the profession, that works do matter. Works have an appropriate place in our lives as Christians, for they are good and profitable unto men. May you receive the glory, the, the honor, Lord, as we, we walk in your ways as we really live as Christians. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. James, I just want to turn the time over to you.